Cures with Lindy Burns, lawyer Bill O'Shea and psychiatrist Dr Steve Allen. Welcome to Ritz and Cures and tonight we'll be joined by the Melbourne Barrister in Julian Burnside AOQC talking about lots of wonderful things to do with the law and some not so wonderful things as well and getting them very much from his perspective. But firstly in our regular soapbox segment we're looking at depression because ideas about depression are changing. More and more people are questioning the old adage that depression is due to a chemical imbalance in the brain. And most recently, a fellow called Johan Hari published a book called Lost Connections. And basically, he said, everything we've been told is wrong. He talks about nine causes. Uh, He did the same previously for addiction. So we'll have a look at what was in that book and we'll ask questions like, is it really that simple? If we just talk about nine causes, really, couldn't there be multiple causes for depression? This is just a list of causes waiting to be discovered. So lots to talk about, and we'll value your input on 0437 774 774 to text, and you can ring on 1300 774. And we are very cognizant of the fact that we are talking about an issue that is Quite difficult for a lot of people, sadly, in our community. And uh, please do not forget, Lifeline is there, 13 11 14, if something is triggered for you as a result of this. But it's a it's a very good evening to Melbourne lawyer, Bill Ashay. Hello, Bill. Hi, Lindy. Nice to see you. Thanks for coming in. And psychiatrist, Professor Steve Ellen. Hello, Steve. G'day, Lindy. Nice to see you as well. So I, I'm kind of responsible for this conversation. You are. Because I sent you a... Um, I sent you a, a, just a little connection, a little link saying, hey, this looks really interesting. And then you, because you're enormously obedient, uh, read it. It's true. I am enormously obedient. <laughs> well, At least not, I not when it comes to, to my suggestions. Well, that's, yeah, well, that's another conversation for another night. One law topic every five weeks. I mean, what's going on here? <laughs> that's what I consider to be the appropriate ingredient <laughs> for a good meal of radio. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Is that a fair yeah, way of saying it? As many it? medical things as we possibly can. You know, it is tricky. But this is, you know, I, I've got to say, though, yeah, you sent me a couple of articles, a couple of links. There's been a lot of publicity around this um, this um, guy, Johan Hari, and the book he's written on depression. Um, it's got a lot of publicity for various reasons. One, I think it's um, really triggered an idea that's of its time if I can put it that way, this idea that the chemical imbalance in the brain and that's the cause of depression, that idea has largely run its race. Pretty much every big group in the world has um, started questioning that. Oh, have they? Yeah, yeah, pretty much from the World Health Organisation down. Pretty much everyone says, hey, there's there's more to this story than the chemical imbalance meets the eye. Although I think that idea was right for the 90s. But now I think it's gone, and I'll explain what I mean in a second. Okay. But, so it's got a lot of publicity, this idea, because he's written it really well. He's written the, this book about depression and the causes in the same way that John Ronson wrote The Psychopath Test and the people who stare at goats or whatever it is. You know John Ronson wrote? He basically takes a, um, some sort of health concept and then in a gonzo journalism style goes and interviews all the experts, puts himself in the middle, talks about his own de- depression in this case, and turns um, what would normally be a boring scientific read of 20 or 30 years of literature into 
a novel with a beginning, an arc, a middle, an end, all that sort of stuff. Right. And that's what he's done, and I think that's why he's picked up so much attention. That's the kind of thing that goes on now, isn't it? We were talking off air a, a little while back uh, about Michael Mosley, who, mm. who's the medical doctor who yep. has become world famous now because he, he looks at the different things that the world is trying to come to grips with, whether it be obesity, whether it be exercise, also depression is another. Mm. and and But then goes and puts himself into the middle of yep. the treatment that goes on. So it is kind of a gonzo journalism, but it works. It's really effective, isn't it? It's chemical imbalance um, really promoted by drug companies, That the concept of the chemical imbalance, because obviously drug companies would say you can fix it with our drug. Well, the drug company, you know, the dr- antidepressants have been something like, I don't know, a hundred, a thousand billion dollar industry, something ridiculous, yeah. hundred billion dollars or a thousand or whatever. But you don't, um, buy, you don't a get a drug money. for lifestyle no. or emotional issues. You get it for a chemical imbalance. Yes. So, and so the push- drug companies definitely enjoyed the benefits of that explanation of depression as well. But I don't think they were the only ones, you know, because I was around back, you know, back in the eighties when you couldn't mention depression publicly. You didn't, suicide was just, almost taboo. You, often we were told that we couldn't even do research on suicide because if we mentioned it to patients, if we asked them about it, we might put the, the idea into their head. So the whole thing was taboo. You couldn't get any traction anywhere to do with trying to publicise depression and basically saying to the world that this is common, there are treatments available, come and talk to us. And that's all anyone wanted to do. And you'll remember we chatted to Jeff Kennett last year and he talked about the challenges Beyond Blue had early on. No one wanted to talk about it or hear about it. It was considered taboo. And so when we first started talking about it in the 90s and getting a lot of publicity and lots of people started trying to get into the media to try and, you know, explain what was going on and encourage people who were suffering to seek help to reach out, we needed a simple explanation. And that's where the idea, that's why I, I don't really believe it was just a cynical um, attempt by drug companies to push the message, which is a little bit what this book says. This book doesn't say that entirely. Um, I believe it was a, a confluence of factors. One, we needed a simple explanation where we could go out and say to people, this problem exists. It's not because you're weak or got no moral character. It actually can be viewed as an illness. It can be viewed in a lot of ways, but it can be viewed as an illness. And you know what? We even understand a bit of the chemistry of it. Just like we know when you cough and splutter, you might have a virus in your lungs, we know that there's some chemical changes. Now, that then got picked up, and people started thinking that the chemical changes were the cause of depression. And it, it got a little bit oversimplified. And not, and the, not the symptoms of depression. Well, it's just the biology of it. Yeah. So it's not, if I can put it this way, it's not the pathology, it's not the cause, it's the biology. Mm. So we know when you get depressed, your chemical changes. But if you get depressed because your partner dies and you're grieving, you get the same chemical changes as someone who gets it out of the blue. So you clearly, the chemical changes aren't necessarily the cause and this is going to sound a bit weird, although in some cases maybe they are. Just like For example, um, the chemical changes might be because someone close to you died and you've got depressed for psychological reasons and the chemicals in your brain have react. Similarly, you might have, say, some genetic abnormality that leads to a lack of these chemicals. So the end result might both be that you lie in bed crying all day, not wanting to get out of bed, but there might be different pathways with which you've reached it. Some social, isolation, trauma, some psychological, loss, some biological, your genes or something in your brain that... I'm going to use a 
a very medical term, dry up the chemicals. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So there's lots of different pathways. So, but weren't they both recognised at the time when the chemical imbalance thing was being bandied about? Mm. Wasn't there still a recognition that if something awful had happened to you and you were grieving or angry or, or there'd been a massive life shift, that, that you know that you w- were, as a result of that, feeling this particular way? Yes, and there always has been. So if you look at the... Um, you know, the research into depression for decades, ever since the 50s, or the, no, going back another 100 years, there's always been biological streams, psychological streams, and social streams. There's social scientists who study, and everyone has their ideas. Another thing that happened around the time of the 70s and 80s is there was a huge backlash to the psychological theories of depression. So this was around the time when, of course, Freud was massive in the 70s and 80s in the USA in particular, and psychiatry had become all about lying on couches and endlessly hour upon hour of talking about your childhood and there was a big backlash that a lot of that wasn't working very well and a part of that backlash fed into the biologism and we and everyone talks about you know this split occurred there was all the um, scientists who were into the brain and all the scientists who were into the mind and around about the 80s all the funding bodies said we think you guys who have been you men and women not just guys you people who've been doing the mind research have led us down a garden path Mm. and everything went then they were chopped yeah and so all the money for the last 20 or 30 years has gone down the brain side but do you i want to come back to whether the pendulum is now just swinging the other way because hey that's the the world works but do you think that people experience depression in fundamentally the same way Ooh, that's it. You know, there's some core symptoms, but how you get to them and the symptoms that you have and the pathway to those symptoms, you know what it reminds me a little bit of? When you get dementia, it can start in different ways. If it starts in your temporal lobes, it's memory. If it starts in your frontal lobes, it's your personality that changes. If it starts other places, it might be hallucinations. But as the, it progresses and gets worse, it affects the whole brain and you all end up looking the And if we all, when we get dementia, end up looking the same. Depression's a little bit the same. In the early on parts of it, it can manifest in all sorts of ways from lack of confidence, behaviour disturbance, problems with your relationships, problems at work. One person might cry. One person might get anxious. One person might have a panic attack. Another person might feel that life's not worth living. But as it gets severe, it tends to look pretty similar. Okay, but, but yeah. at the early stages, yeah. we can be coming from all it sorts of directions. It can manifest in various ways. And I just want to go back to the whole chemical imbalance thing and how we just went on this you know, crazy ride of, well, hey, here's some antidepressants for long periods of time. If you're depressed, depression is caused by something like a traumatic event, Mm. then why diagnose the antidepressants? I think I know the answer and it kind of makes sense, but is it still within that person's best interests? Well, there's two parts to that answer, if you'll excuse me. I realise I don't want to make this sound like a lecture or, you know, like I'm giving a tutorial, but um, there's two parts to it. One, we didn't quite understand trauma up until We've only really got a good grip on it in the last 20 years. So part of it was that we didn't understand the role of trauma in mental health. We thought trauma, a couple of things. One, we thought trauma was incredibly rare up until the 90s. Like we thought things like childhood sexual abuse were rare. And we thought back then that if they did occur, oh, kids are pretty resilient and no one took a heck of a lot of notice. Wow. That was what it was like. Then in the 90s, a whole lot of research came out that said, Trauma, in particular sexual abuse, but other forms of trauma, are far more common than anyone realises. In fact, there was a landmark study that came out in the 90s where I remember when it came out. We almost fell over backwards. It said a third of women had experienced sexual trauma um, in their 
um, growing up. Now I bet these the days, female colleagues that you had yeah, didn't fall over backwards. And of course, these days everyone would say, "Duh, that's so mm-hmm. obvious." But back then, we did. We thought it was as rare as hen's teeth, and um, no, not we, like me personally, but the community, the world, they thought it was pretty rare. So all the stuff started coming out. And remember, back then, no one could even imagine a priest might, for example, abuse someone. So it was a different time. Yeah. People thought it was rare. And then they thought if it did occur, not much happened. And then in the 90s, a whole lot of research came out that said, my goodness, post-traumatic stress disorder is incredibly common. And that was considered a relatively rare disorder that only occurred in soldiers who had been to war. So it turned out that this was incredibly common. And then in the 2000s, in the last 10 years, whatever in now, 2000 and whatever's, 10s, um, it turns out that uh, trauma not only drives post-traumatic stress disorder, but it drives depression and also has a key role in every psych disorder from schizophrenia, eating disorders, you name it, personality disorders, people who self-harm. It's incredible. You know, it's like, so childhood trauma probably increases your risks of mental illness by somewhere around about three or 4,000 percent. So 40, 30, 40 times higher if you've had childhood trauma. And it's in way more common than anyone ever imagined back in the 70s. So that's transformed the whole of mental health. But to come, I'm going to try but and But does quick. it transform the cure as well? It does, because as we it understand a, I mean, things. The more you describe it, the more multi-headed it is. True, but through you know the whole history of medicine is by understanding the true nature of the disorders, we tend to get treatments. Um, and, you know, we had Joe Trapani on last week talking about um, cancer and immunology. You know, through understanding the immune system, all these new treatments are coming out, and now there's finally an end in sight. Now, we're not even close to that in psychiatry, but certainly we know and we believe as scientists that the pathway is by understanding these things better. But to come back to your question of does it change treatment, at the end of the day, if someone walks into my office and they've got depression, I don't know in an individual person what's the cause. I can't look into their brain. There is no test. We can't measure the chemicals in an individual's brain. I don't know what's happened in their life at that stage. So we actually base our treatment not on the cause of the depression more so much as on how severe it is. Mild, moderate, severe. The treatments are slightly different for mild, moderate, severe. And we push those treatments down a particular biological, psychological or social path depending on our gut feeling. But at the end of the day... It's mainly the severity of the depression that drives our treatment more than the cause. So an, sorry, Lindy, no. an MRI won't show up depression. Absolutely of not the brain. A, a brain, brain won't scan. Do a thing. It's at a chemical level. The smallest an MRI gets down to is about half a um, millimetre, and these are chemicals, nothing. Even a PET scan is not detailed enough, really, to show up any... De- a PET scans, you know, the functional imaging of the brain. That won't help us either. I'm kind of surprised that it's hard to determine what the cause is of someone's depression from just talking to them. Are you saying that people tend to not even know themselves to be able to articulate it? I was mainly referring to when someone walks into the office first assessment. Now, once you've been treating them for a while and they trust you and they start to talk about stuff and they break down their own perceptions of what's wrong, because normally the first three months people are just telling what they believe is wrong, and as they get through all of that, then they will often start to talk about things. But I've had many patients who I've maybe seen for three or four months before I find out that there's been some trauma, and often they'll, you know tell it like it's a revelation too so not everyone is in, is aware of it and of course trauma is not the only thing driving it all the other things and that's what this um, book's about all the different causes that might be contributing other than um, the chemical imbalance and I should add that um, Johan Hari doesn't say to throw chemical imbalance out the window he says put it in perspective it's way smaller issue than um, 
then people realise it's important. Genes and chemical imbalance are important, but there's a whole lot of social and psychological determinants of depression. And he lists seven of them that he discovered, not discovered, you know, that he um, writes about as a journalist from speaking to all the world experts and so, he so, goes through them. So patients shouldn't be going to their GP expecting to come out with a script. If you get look, I'd go, you know, I'm I'm a little a bit lot anti. Would. A lot would you know think. What, yeah, and you know, on the spectrum of pro versus anti medications, I'm a little bit closer to the anti. I would say if you get a script after anything under at least an hour, you know, a couple of appointments, I, personally, I think that's too soon, unless you've got severe depression and you're suicidal, obviously, because mm. then if someone's in the severe category, you do every, you know, because basically, in a nutshell, the treatment of depression is, if it's mild, it's psychological first aid, which is advice about, is talking about relationships, talking about stress, sleep, nutrition, and exercise. That's treatment of mild depression. Moderate depression is medications or psychological therapy, whatever the patient prefers, whatever's most appropriate. And severe depression, which is where you're suicidal, is psychological therapy plus medications. So the two together. Yeah. So if you go in and you're suicidal and you walk out with the script, I've got zero problems. But if you go in with mild to moderate depression, which is 90% of the people who come in, then it should be an exploration of what's appropriate to you, what the causes are. And normally people have had it for six, 12 months. So a couple of appointments over a week or two to get it right the first time is definitely time and money well spent. Suicidal patients need um, supervision. Well, that's a whole se- a separate topic yeah. you're touching on. I mean, it's a bit hard to say, well, yeah. and hey, of course, you know, you're suicidal, here's some pills. And, you know, what will happen next week or what happens tomorrow? If people are genuinely suicidal, they need a thorough risk assessment. They need a management plan that addresses it. They often need hospitalisation. Yeah. They often need crisis teams that are visiting yeah. them daily. There's a whole lot. And that's like more a, than just walking out of the surgery. Briefly. Yeah, absolutely. Does he go into the book? Does Johan go into in the book about that this this kind of revelation that he's come through or found? Mm. Uh, he does he recommend different types of treatment to what we've been doing in the past? He pretty much divides the book into three bits. His own story he had depression for many years and. He was a huge fan of antidepressants, wrote many articles for the Huffington Post and various other places that he's written for about the wonders of medications and the importance of understanding the chemical imbalance. And then he had a bit of an epiphany and then he went on this um, pathway and then he stopped antidepressants and he writes the book in that style. So the first bit's about himself. The second bit's about what he says are the big, you know, he divides all the causes basically up into society's disconnection from important things like values, um, status, respect, um, meaningful work, respect for other people. So he talks about all that. And then at the end, he talk, in the third part of the book, he talks about how you can take these ideas and what treatments are available. Because, of course, you know, ju- there's just like th- there's, there's biological, psychological and social treatments. That, these are all out there. He just encourages people to explore their own pathway for themselves. It's interesting that it's called lost connections. I yep. think that's one of the major issues, that we're becoming much more isolated in our society. A, a couple of quick texts to wrap this part of the conversation up. Diane in Blackburn saying, I still think stigma is a big problem uh, to get people to actually articulate what it is that they are feeling. Easily uh, our biggest problem. Easily. I agree entirely. The number one problem is getting people to actually reach out and seek help, and the thing that stops them is stigma. And another that says, I think we need to train dogs to smell the chemical differences. This is a serious proposition, says Andrew. Which dogs is, have been trained it? to sniff out certain illnesses, but it's things like chemicals associated with infections and tumours. The chemical changes in the brain in depression are so subtle that you need you know, a couple of hundred people and measure them all and look at the average differences to see them. You can't measure them in an individual person. So whilst it's a great idea, I don't think we're there yet. 
<laughs> Thanks for the text anyway. That was a good one. Thank you very much. And thank you, Steve. Thank you, Bill. Our special guest on Ritz and Cures this evening is Julian Burnside, AOQC. So make sure you, uh, you stick around and keep listening. Ritz and Cures with Lindy Burns. Ritz and Cures is coming your way tonight with myself, Lindy Burns, together with lawyer Bill O'Shea and psychiatrist Steve Ellen, my regular co-hosts. And our special guest tonight is Julian Burnside, QC, AO, well known for his work as a barrister in Australia, as well as a human rights and refugee advocate. He's a supporter of the arts and also an author. His legal practice is principally in commercial litigation and trade practices, as well as administrative law, and also known for his strong op- opposition to the mandatory detention of asylum seekers. He's provided legal counsel in a wide variety of high-profile cases, including successfully appearing for the plaintiff in Trevorrow versus South Australia, which was the first time that a court recognised membership of the Stolen Generation as a basis for legal compensation. He was also successfully appeared before the Federal Court and in the High Court for the Maritime Union of Australia in the Patrick Stevedores versus the MUA litigation, the waterfront dispute, if you want to get the colloquial name. A former president of Liberty Victoria in 2004 was made an Australian living treasure. It's a real thing. And in 2009, he was made an officer of the Order of Australia for services as a human rights advocate, particularly for refugees and asylum seekers, also to the arts as a patron and fundraiser and to the law. His latest book is called Watching Brief. It was published last year. Julian, welcome back. Nice to see you. Thank you. Actually, my last book is called Watching Out. Watching Out, yes. not Watching Brief. My apologies. The one apologies. before that was Watching, watching Brief. <laughs> <laughs> Keep them Fair enough. simpler, will you, please? Okay. No, that is great. Watching Out, published last year. Which is on the desk here, waiting for an autograph. Waiting for an autograph from you. Mm. You're going to autograph I've Julian's book. I've read it in two days. I thought there's no way. It's no good reading it from 9pm on Tuesday night. It won't be of any use. So. Do you want me to autograph a turbul or do you want me to autograph yeah. your chest? Uh, Can we you just keep signing that? the Medicare chits for these bulk billings that you're doing. Julian, night. allow me to ask you a yeah, question. No, I don't no, know I what was, the hell they're doing. I was, doing. I was quite pleased with watching out because Kate, my wife, has read each of the books I've written. And this is the first time when she was reading it, she interrupted herself a number of times to say that how much she was enjoying it and how much she was learning from it. That's mm. great for I modern thought, lawyers. Yeah, well... Mm. I find it astonishing that a partner would say that about yeah. their <laughs> about their loved and ones' work. she's my critic. Exactly. <laughs> she gets a mention. Words. She does get a mention. <laughs> she's uh, the dedication, if I remember correctly. Mm. How does it how does it work these days when you are so well known, so revered? How does that has that changed the way in which you can do the work you want to do? I know that's kind of a complicated story, a complicated question, but it's it's a it's sort of around the idea of does fame for you know for whatever reason one gains it, does fame change the way in which you can get your work done? Are there there must be pros and cons, and I'm wondering what they have been for you. Um, I. I think in court it hasn't changed anything at all. Um, in my ordinary life, I guess it all has altered things a bit. But when you say I'm revered, I'm also despised in equal measure. So <laughs> By certain sections. Out a bit. But yes, watching out, you've got the hate mail included, mm. oh. which is pretty scary. Well, I bet the authors never thought they'd end up in a book. No, that's some of the mild stuff. I mean, 
there's one bloke who writes to me a lot, and uh, he, I mean, he's, I think he's actually mad. Mm. He keeps advocating. Well, you've got a psychiatrist here. You'll need to speak to him well, after yeah. the program well, no, to see bloke, if that's true. This bloke mm. writes to me, and he's very friendly and so on, but he's advocating that we ought to have every Muslim in Australia should be put into concentration camps. Mm. Well, his, people have all sorts of views. Point. He also volunteered but, that mm. um, if any boat person tries to get here, we should the Air, you know, the air Force should strafe them and mm. sink their boats in the water. I mean, that's horrifying. It's mm. pretty horrifying. But I I don't know if that necessarily means that they're mad. But we'll come back to because because depend. I think well, Stephen and I have talked about this stuff before about where these ideas actually come from. Mm. Whether they're actually ideas that have come from one person's own head or they're they're articulating something. Uh, that is part of a, a cause or a religion or a belief that they are connected to. The idea that occurred to me really whilst I was writing the book, and maybe this is a large part of it, is that there's a lot of people out there who are just very distressed about life, just having a lousy time. Um, you know, initially when I got involved in the refugee issue, I used to get a lot of hate mail and I thought, oh, well, all I have to do is persuade them all to change their minds and the thing will be over. <laughs> so I um, decided I'd answer them all. And I did. I did answer every single one. And most of them then replied. And the interesting thing about hate mail is it starts off very, very abusive. But then when I wrote back to them and you know, I'd sort of thank them for their email and say, but maybe you didn't realise it's this fact and that fact and so on. And when they replied, the replies were polite. And I couldn't believe it. They mm. went from screaming to very, very calm in one step. And um, I mean, I don't have the expertise to understand the psychology of it, but I came to the view eventually that most of these people probably didn't care the least about the refugee issue. They just wanted to be noticed. Mm. They didn't. They were or accustomed heard. to being ignored. Heard. They wanted to be heard. Yeah. 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 So do you still write back now? Yeah. You write back on Twitter. You, you're in regular correspondence on Twitter. I, I use Twitter a lot. I don't read all of the stuff that mm. people say about me because mm. I don't – I'm a sort of – But I've seen you on corresponding Twitter. on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. not many other Twitter users do. Engage More the, and more people <laughs> are doing it. More, mm. There's a famous example of it. Sarah Silverman, who is a, a, a well-known American comedian – uh, talk show host, etc. Saturday Night Live, I think probably that that crowd uh, was getting abused on Twitter for something or other, and she ended up engaging with one particular person who was being outrageously rude, mm. and and uh, th- and then he he ended up talking about what had happened to him, and they became. She said some really lovely things to him, and it became. It was really. It was a global phenomenon in many ways. The way people were engaging with. The, the fact that he'd started out being so abusive and then not that she'd turned him, you know, mm. his views around, but in fact the way he was engaging in the discourse had completely changed. Which brings me to my question. The people that became more polite in answer, mm. when you answered them, did, did they change their views? About half of them did. Interesting. Yeah. About half of them ended up saying in substance, look, I agree with you now. Mm. And um, about 25% ended up saying in substance... I don't agree with you, but I think it's good you stand up for what you believe in. Yeah. And the other so there's respect there. Not so good. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're very but, staunch in their view. But I thought that was not bad. So That's, what do you think the reason is why, about why people have those views in the first place then? Because a lot of people have lives that they're not enjoying. You know, something's gone wrong in the deep past and it troubles them and the more they complain, the less people listen, the less people listen, the louder they complain, 
and they get to the stage where they're driven to ring up late-night talkback radio until even the panel operator knows to screen them out. And they are the ones who need to be listened to. I think one of the biggest challenges to justice in our community is to recognise the simple fact that everyone needs to be noticed as a person. And people who are ignored um, at, at all levels of the system, those people need something. The only thing I'd add is that a lot of people argue because they they have a superficial understanding of the um, principles, and that includes all of us, myself included, depending on the topic. And so a lot of the times it's just something that will trigger it. Like, for example, with refugees, it might be that they might have the belief that my way of life is going to change. And they mightn't appreciate the actual numbers and the actual facts and the features. Those people, when you explain and argue, will come around. Um, then there'll be a proportion of people who regardless won't be changed, but then there's also a small proportion who are just trolls, who they're not in it for the argument. They don't actually care about the topic. They're just in it because they like a fight. Do you think Australians have always been like this? I mean, do you think Australia in the 70s and 80s was like this, that there was... I mean, we had we had Greeks and Italians arriving. We had Hungarians in the 50s after the invasion. We had Vietnamese arriving that Malcolm Fraser really made feel welcome. Do you think we had the same... Anti- anti- you know, anti-aggressive uh, attitude towards those arrivals as we do with Muslims? I, um, actually, yes, I do, <clears throat> although we seem to be more... We don't now, though. We oh, don't now, do we? No, no, we no. We love but, them. But, but, yeah, I know, but it took two generations. Mm. I mean, I, I grew up in Melbourne in the 50s. I remember what it was like, you know, sort of Italian and the Greek. Thick, the thick bread but, sandwiches they'd bring to school. <laughs> yeah. mm. and, and and they'd be called, oh, you know, ties and wogs mm. and DPs and so on. Mm. I remember when wog was a really, really sharp term of abuse. But the boys who put together wogs out of work really mm. drew the teeth out of it. Mm. Um, but I think for some reason, even though our arrival in this country was sort of casual and uninvited, we are really not very nice to people who come here casual and uninvited. But we adjust to them, don't we? We adjust to them eventually, once once they've you know run the gauntlet, yes. Uh, and is it the second generation that helps you adjust when they have children and they, their children mix with our children? Um, I guess so. I really haven't studied the mechanism. No. I don't know it's the It's very reasons. interesting psychology. I mean, I think it is because... Um, my dad used to talk about refos, yeah. which are refugees yeah. from the war, who were coming into factories and taking their job, perceived to be mm. refos. And you never hear refo anymore, but uh, it, w- it wasn't true because, in fact, they added enormously to what our skill set. You know, the Transfield guys were refos mm. to Italians who set up Transfield. Um, so it's always been there, but it died away because we've accepted that we, you know, we've got a great multicultural society but it doesn't seem to be that still yet with muslims when you look at has it got do you think it's got anything to do with 9-11 oh it's got everything to do with 9-11 i mean i i think human rights is, uh, is an area that's at real risk not only in australia but across the west uh, the the start of the major movement in human rights the embracing of human rights as an idea really started after the end of the second world war as a result of the holocaust and the eleanor roosevelt's um, you know, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but it all changed on September 11, 2001. Then human rights has gradually become less and less respectable, uh, which and is a great pity because eventually we're going to have to recognise that uh, the proper treatment of individual human beings is basic to all of us. But we don't remember the Holocaust 
No, we don't. We don't remember the effect of World War Two. Most people, most people who were alive and thinking during the Holocaust or at the end of the Second World War aren't alive anymore. Most of us. Mm. Uh, I mean, you were probably alive. You were, <laughs> no, yeah. only just. Yeah. Mm. But it's, that is the issue, isn't it? Direct experience yeah. with the need for human rights yeah. to prevent a repeat of what they've been mm. through. And it's very worrying to see in Europe right now um, human rights falling into the shade because Europeans, more than most of us, understand what happens when human rights fail. It's interesting to me. I think it just feeds in with all sorts of things, our attitude towards climate change, etc. We've become a very mm. complacent society. We take for granted some of the, the, the great privileges that we have as, a, as, part, as being a part of the Western world um, at, and yet at the same time are absolutely terrified of losing them. Mm. And, and so we'll grasp onto any excuse to, to push away the, the foreign, in inverted commas, uh, anything foreign or anything that is going to shift that comfortable position I found myself in and I'm, you know, I, don't, I don't need to fight with that. I've reached the top of the tree and I plan to mm. stay here. It's interesting for me, though, I always feel a little uncomfortable when, you know, four white privileged people talk about refugees. I always feel like I want to bring in uh, a refugee experience. Um, I, you spend so much of your time working, Julian, uh, to defend them and, in fact, not just defend them in the legal world, but you actually welcomed a 10-year-old refugee boy into your home. How long ago was that? Um, actually, Musa was the last of about 10 or 11 refugees we've had living with us because when I got involved in the Tampa case, um, Kate, being an artist, responded in a way that was um, pretty, well, not obvious, but uh, kind of straightforward. She said, this is not what Australia is like. Australians are friendly and generous and hospitable and most Australian homes have got a spare room, so let's set up spare rooms for refugees. That was her thinking. And I said, well, look, if we're going to do that, we have to lead by example. So from late 2001 until the present, we've had refugees living at home. Where have they come from? Um, the very first was a, a Uyghur from northwest China and I think all of the others since then have been Afghan Hazaras because the Afghan Hazaras were, you know, they were sort of like the equivalent of the European Jews in the 1930s. T targeted by the Taliban. Tar terribly targeted by the Taliban, yeah. Mm. And there's a generation of Hazara children who grew up back then who have lost one or both of their legs because the Taliban used, used them as mind-sweeping operations. They would have them walking hand in hand across a field and when any of them stood on a landmine, that would get rid of the landmine but also get rid of their legs. Mm -hmm. mm. It's just horrendous. Mm. It's interesting when you act on these issues how you choose where to take your fights because we've just heard now. So we all know that you've done lots of work in the media and fighting the government and trying to change laws. So big picture stuff. We've just heard a minute ago that you even answer individuals. And I was thinking to myself as you said that surely that's a waste of your time when you could be writing to politicians and making big changes. And then at the middle level stuff, you're acting. How do, you, do you sit back with the policy? Do you sit back with the plan and think how do I affect change or is it what comes what comes into your consciousness? Um, I try to figure out the best way of using my time and I'm probably not very good at that. 
You, you asked George Brandis on Q and Q and A one night yeah. about um, about the word illegal. Is yeah. it what law have asylum seekers arriving in Australia broken, and therefore why are they regarded as illegal arrivals? Hmm. And what was his answer? Well, he I know I asked him whether because when I realised that he was going to be on the panel with me, what I wanted to do was Attorney to ask General, him, we should say. Yeah, yep. I wanted to ask him whether he thought it appropriate that his party. Um, calls people illegal mm. and win, you know, political popularity out of that when to do so is false. Mm. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to set that up with a prior question. Does he think that they're illegal? Does he think they break any law? And the simple fact is they don't break any law. And I was astounded when he said, yes, they do. Mm. And so I said, well, what law? And he said, oh, I can't be expected to know that. Actually, I think he should be expected to know <laughs> that. Attorney General. <laughs> As Attorney General and leading a government which has run to political success, calling them illegal. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, let's not be critical only of the present government, although I am mm. critical of them. The Labor Party have never come out publicly and contradicted the mm. illegals tag. No, they've never used it, but they've never contradicted no, it. No, and, and, and they've never contradicted Manus Island. They, what Richard Miles, their spokesman, says is you've got to, got to make it work. Yeah. Well, how do you yeah. do that? I mean, I don't know how much it costs a day, but it's quite expensive business. But you see, you both forget that they are responding to an electorate that votes them in because they have those policies. Mm. They are politicians. Mm. They are politicians. That is their job, to put together policies. Sadly, this is the case now. It never used to be. But the case is now to put together a bunch of policies that's going to get them elected. I agree. That's it. And if they didn't lie to the public, it wouldn't work as well. And... What I'd like to see in this country is politicians... I mean, just imagine for a minute if Malcolm Turnbull got up and said publicly, look, um, we've lied to you the last 16 years. They don't break any law by coming here. They don't come in big numbers. They're desperate. It's tragic. And by the way, when we say we're worried about them drowning, that's a lie as well. Because what do we do to the ones who don't drown? We punish them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And the 55,000 overstayers... on the aeroplanes. Yeah, 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 yeah. How do you oh, yeah. think the, the electorate would respond to that? Um, I think the electorate would probably come around gradually if they were told the truth. So initially they would be voted out of power. Um, yeah, which is one reason they're not doing it. I have great faith in the Australian public. I think most Australians are decent people who would be horrified if they could meet some of the people who've been treated so badly, if they could understand that these people are treated badly under cover of court. I mean... God Almighty, we take innocent human beings and we put them in jail for years on end. Now, well, for life, in some cases. Yeah, well, for the ones who die there, yeah. Mm. See, but, but I the, still... See, still you, sorry, by, sorry, by the way, you asked about Manus and the cost. Yeah. It costs $570,000 per refugee per year to mm. keep them in awful yeah. conditions. Yeah, that's yeah. just ludicrous. Steve? I was just going to say, though, I, I, I still think that the public's basic fear, and I course I could be wrong, is a fear of a loss of our change of lifestyle. That the basic belief is we're a lucky country and we allow a lot of people who have vastly different religious beliefs and laws to us. This That we could be, even though we'd, I think people would like to find a solution that wasn't cruel, they think that at the end of the day we could face a change in our basic lifestyle and I think that's what people fear. Standard of living. Mm. It sounds like anti-Semitism in the 1930s, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does. My, 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 my grandmother grew up in Lenox Street, Richmond, with an all-Irish Catholic working-class area uh, near where the Epworth is in Lenox Street, Richmond, now housing commission flats. Their houses were demolished. They were taken over by Italian and Greeks uh, mm-hmm. who, when they migrated. 
They then moved out to Doncaster or wherever they built their houses and in came the Vietnamese who are largely still there. None of that's changed. In fact, it's enriched our society. It hasn't taken anyone's job. I mean, it's this xenophobia that do you know, though, we live the, on an who island. Are the voters? Do we know the breakdown? Because people like us who are older and have lived through multiple um, yeah. uh, groups, we know that it doesn't change our lifestyle. I agree. Mm. But the people, I'm, I, I'm assuming that not everyone sees it that way. They've not are, been exposed. They haven't yeah. lived in inner city Melbourne, well, seen targeted. the Vietnamese community, seen the Italians, seen the Greeks. Well, I, the, the majority of politicians d- don't care what goes on in Victoria. They pretty much know what the vote's going to be here. They're targeting other parts of the country and specific electorates that are the swing electorates that they need to have on side. And interestingly enough, many of those are highly diverse yeah, yeah. in terms of the, the religions and the cultural backgrounds, highly diverse and, electorates. And appreciate it. It's very mm. interesting. I want, this is the question I wanted to ask you since we started, Julia. We're going to run out of time. The fundamental difference between the legal system and the justice system. Okay. Well, um, the only way the justice system works is through the doorway of the legal system. Um, Whether it works to produce justice is a debatable question and um, different people have different views about that. I guess it gets as near as you can, but a lot of people suffer badly from it. You know, I mean... You can't manipulate, you can't use the legal system without the help of lawyers. Lawyers are expensive. Therefore, some people find that justice is simply not available to them. They can't get through. There was an English judge who said famously that the doors of the courts are open to all people, like the doors of the Savoy Hotel. You know? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's very comforting, I'm sure. (laughs) That's right. The what hotel? So so many legal cases must be abandoned by people who can't afford to run them. Yeah. We would never know how many are abandoned. About 6% or so of cases in the Supreme Court have a self-represented litigant on one side or other. About 20 or 30% of magistrates' court cases have self-represented litigants. These are people who can't get to justice by using a lawyer because they can't afford a lawyer. And if they don't use a lawyer, they're tangling with a very complicated system Mm. and they will come out the other end Mm. thinking they haven't had justice. But also your point is that if you're not represented, the cost to the system is more than the legal aid they don't get. Mm. Because it holds up the system, stuffs up. The judges have got to stop and and give them a DIY course in how to run a case. Yeah, and, and, you know, I don't agree with everything that every judge says, but I will say that all of them seem to have a genuine belief that justice is important and they will give the, you know, the the self-represented litigant a DIY course um, and that is very slow and inefficient. It's not the way the system ought to work. Sadly enough. Julian, Mm. thank you for coming in. It's always such a pleasure to see you. Julian Burnside, QCAO, our special guest on Ritz and Cures tonight. So many good texts coming through. I think this is an interesting one. European immigrants, for the most part in the past, were perceived as white. Many Muslims have browner skin. I think this could be the basis of the later disturbance. It's an interesting point. Thanks for bringing that up. And another person sent another text in saying, Lindy, is this available as a podcast? Yes. It's funny you should mention that. (laughs) It absolutely is available as a podcast. So go to ABC Listen, the ABC Listen app, or to the ABC Radio Melbourne website and click into Ritz and Cures and you'll be able to listen to this one in the next few days 
and previous podcasts of Risen Cures from the past few years. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Julian. Thank you, Steve. Cheers. Cheers.